justice is an important word, a large concept, and as happens with other important and large concepts, think of love, think of goodness, think of peace, they're deeply lodged in our human consciousness and actions, yet there are endless disputes about them. There are perennial conflicts of understanding, love, happiness, goodness, and justice, our topic tonight. My title, which Father Gain has just mentioned, is in fact a quotation from John Rawls, uh, an American philosopher, one of the main philosophers of justice in the last century. Uh, and uh, his a theory of justice has been translated in endless languages. And in a way, it proves his point, because his theory of justice has been endlessly disputed from many points of view. So clearly, in thinking about justice and its negations, injustice, we're dealing with something that matters very much, but tends to produce conflict. So it's important, yet there's much disagreement. The second part of my title is, well, how can Aquinas help? I'd like to suggest there are two ways, really, that Aquinas helps us with this. One is in terms of method, how to go about settling matters of justice and injustice. The other is, of course, to give you an idea of what he himself thought. The first thing Thomas would teach us, I think, and help us with is whatever you think about must have a context. So whatever we believe has a context, but sometimes we're not even aware of that. And in discussions, we're often across purposes precisely because the contexts in which these thoughts and words are used are not shared. I imagine you've all been, we've all been in lively, shall we say, debates about whether something's just or unjust. And unless you know each other well, or we know ourselves well, it will on the whole be rather fruitless. There'll be two monologues, it won't become a dialogue because the context out of which each one of us speaks hasn't emerged. Some of the context which matters in learning from Aquinas on justice, and I refer only to his Summa Theologiae, which is only one of his works, of course, comprehensive enough for our purposes, is that it's, of course, these three or four questions 57 to 61 of a secunda secunde are, of course, a fraction of a summa, which is a fraction of Aquinas's thought, but to stick to the summa theologia. That, as the title suggests, is a theological account 
of our human condition and its destiny towards God. Theological, you notice, speaking from God's point of view. That's the first element of a context out of which Aquinas writes. Then it's a virtue. Now, you, we're dealing with this uh, so often, but uh, one can do an action a number of times in an isolated kind of way without having the virtue. And so the virtue, as we'll see, is a settled disposition of someone. Although there can be acts of justice, which are isolated acts of justice and don't really add up to a virtue or just about. So that's the second aspect of the context in which Aquinas places his account of justice. Then this account of justice comes after Aquinas's examination of what he calls the theological virtues, meaning faith, hope, charity. The crucial difference there is that whilst the theological virtues unite us to God, the other virtues, the human virtues, if you like, make us better friends with others, but as such do not unite us to God. And so already we're beginning to see the scale of human flourishing and its relationship to God. So the virtues, as it were, make us better human beings. The theological virtues unite us to God. Among the virtues, the human virtues, if you like, the moral virtues, are what Aquinas calls the cardinal virtues. Uh, by that, it doesn't mean that only cardinals have them, although I'm sure they do, uh, but it means it's a hinge. Uh, a cardinal virtue is a hinge virtue on which other, if you like, lesser virtues uh, move in relationship to the cardinal virtues. And for Aquinas, and is now firmly in the tradition, uh, the cardinal virtue of justice is alongside that of prudence, uh, of courage, and temperance. So the first thing then Aquinas teaches us is, say nothing without being aware of a context out of which you speak. If you're going to dialogue, be clear that unless you settle the context out of which each of you is speaking, there'll just be two monologues. Um, there won't be any genuine dialogue, just repetitions of what one knew before the discussion started. My second point is that in the Catholic tradition of moral theology, there are always three sources, scripture, reason, tradition. So if what we say is not in some way based, grows out of scripture, reason, and tradition, then there won't be a fully Catholic answer. Now, tonight, uh, I'm going to limit myself to, if you like, the reason side of things, because, well, everything has its limit. And uh, I've particularly designed this talk in hope uh, to help us when we're discussing with non-believers. 
because an argument with a non-believer along the lines of, well, because God says so, or of a non-believer would just shrug his or her shoulders, or because the church says so. So it's scripture and tradition are not directly useful in debate and in dialogue, although, of course, they're essential for a Catholic moral theology. And we can find that in things like the Catechism, a large volume, or the Compendium of Social Doctrine of the Church. There you can find a complete account. As I say, tonight, out of scripture, reason, tradition, I'll concentrate on reason, which includes natural law, of course, uh, truths accessible to human reason. And uh, I think part of the strength of Aquinas's account of justice and why he can be of help to us is precisely this intellectual, philosophical, rational strength. In fact, it comes as a surprise to people who uh, read Aquinas, and in particular who read Aquinas on justice, just how prominent Aristotle is and Cicero. And of course, neither was a Christian. And this sometimes surprises people. Uh, and sometimes uh, people wonder how uh, Aquinas can spend so many pages, so much thought, drawing on Aristotle and to a lesser extent Cicero. Um, then I think it's not theology at all. But again, that's to misunderstand the aim. Uh, obviously, and this is why the context matters, uh, what we're dealing with tonight is a fraction of one work, which is totally theological. Uh, but each thing has its level. So scripture, reason, tradition, although interconnected, each has its level. For example, uh, St. Thomas will show how the Ten Commandments, Revelation, are also precepts of justice, uh, and that natural reason assents to them. This is part of the strength of Catholic position, if you like, in discussions of justice, that uh, it doesn't need to, at least at first, say, because God says so, or because the church says so, although both scripture simplified as God says so, and tradition simplified as the church says so, uh, have their place. The virtues um, can be infused by God as a gift of God, and that applies to justice as well. But they also have a natural component. And for the Christian, this natural component isn't forgotten or abolished. It's completed, like everything human, when it enters the world of grace of God. Uh, and it's understood more fully and has a deeper reason of justice, righteousness, um, than its human sense. And in fact, later in the Summa, St. Thomas will say that the gift of piety, pietas, as he calls it, under the Holy Spirit is the equivalent of a virtue of justice. And it's so that a natural virtue of justice is transformed 
um, in various ways, and of the Holy Spirit in the gift of Pietas. And here, uh, as I mentioned, come with justice as a cardinal virtue, other associated virtues. Thomas mentions, well, piety itself, respect, gratitude, vindication, truth, friendliness, and liberality. My third point, yeah, having been trained as a lawyer, I mean, I have this boring habit of listing things. Um, um, uh, the third way I think Aquinas can help us in our dialogues, debates, disputes about justice, especially with non-believers, is that Thomas never just states a position. He always argues for it. And this is extremely interesting in the way the Summa is constructed and is a great help to us, I think. Normally, in each question he discusses, divided into articles, each article states a thesis, something he wants to propose. He then lists objections to that. He then replies, giving his own view of a matter, and then answers each objection in turn. Now, this, again, is a long way from saying, oh, well, this is just because God says so. This is just because the church says so. Even within reason, though, everything is argued for, and the, let's call him uh, the opponent, the objector, is never parodied. In fact, sometimes Aquinas probably puts the objections better than the people who think they hold them put them. Um, so it's taken seriously, and we should imitate that approach. Um, often when, particularly in matters of justice and injustice, when positions are diametrically opposed, uh, it, it means we've started too far down the line. So we have to go back till each of us find something in common that we both agree on, and then come forward again. Because of a point at which we enter the discussion, uh, it's too late down the line to make sense by itself. And so uh, always listen and give the best possible interpretation and understanding that you can have. Um, and Thomas teaches that. There's also a concrete realism in what Aquinas says. Um, we tend to think of him as uh, perhaps a very abstract academic figure, but in fact, he was uh, immersed in many of the debates and disputes of his day, and um, uh, knew what it meant to be opposed, uh, as well as to meet uh, opposition and to provide another point of view. Much of a space, and is why I put it in the title, apart from quoting John Rawls, uh, is given to injustice. Uh, and there's a whole string of various forms that injustice can take, that justice can be injured or violated. And uh, this shows also how much knowledge of a real world is needed to enter into debates about justice. Because the risk, of course, with all these abstract things like love, peace, we're all in their favour till we start discussing them and applying them. Then it all melts away because we're too abstract uh, to have much content. 
and the injustices provide Aquinas with part of that real human uh, tension in what we do. Well, he begins those questions on justice, uh, not by discussing justice, which you might think would be the obvious thing, but discussing what he calls jus, right, de jure. Now, where we start any discussion obviously affects our journey. It also affects our termination, where we're going to. Thomas says that there are four things to be considered. Right, this Latin word use, which is very hard to render in English, because use means both law and right. Whilst uh, in the English language, we've split the two, and that's at faithful consequences, because how we talk is how we think. And so we have to work hard at learning another language. So first is right, this use. Then justice itself, then injustice, and then judgment. We might translate use uh, as entitlement. That might do. Uh, what is due as your own, what you are entitled to. That's a, a pivot on which justice turns. And Aquinas is particularly keen to stress that while the other virtues tend to deal principally with a person who has them, uh, the difference in justice is that it deals with relations with others. It's a kind of equality, as the name implies, the, if you like, the right balance, right, uh, meaning not just what I'm entitled to, but what is right. And this shifts the discussion immediately, as we'll see. The right then, the right thing, what is due, uh, what is fair, what has to be, is the object of justice. And this is objectively right, uh, abstracting from the way it's done, which is why it's different as a virtue from, let's say, temperance or courage. To put it formally, and he tends to speak formally, of course, uh, the human will can, by common agreement, make something to be just, provided it be not itself contrary to natural justice. Again, the objectivity of this, which is very hard, of course, contemporary language, uh, contemporary discussions, where the language of rights has become my right. So uh, you get that consistently, my right, my right, not what is right which is the way Thomas would put it. Let's do what is right, not how do I vindicate my right? Um, that, that must be secondary, I would say, for, for, for Aquinas. And then he starts to say things which uh, are not going to get an easy hearing. They probably didn't um, 700 years ago, but they certainly won't now. If something is contrary to natural right, then the human will, wanting something, cannot make it just. For example, he says, decreeing it is lawful to steal or to commit adultery. I mean, just deciding that won't make it just, because it isn't the right thing, uh, it, objectively. And he quotes Isaiah, 
there was a lot of Aristotle, some Cicero, but of course presupposed and part of the Summa as a whole of scriptures as well as tradition. And he quotes Isaiah, woe to them who make wicked laws. Now this begins to distance us from many people uh, our contemporaries will be in discussion with and must be in dialogue with. That is not enough that some, some people agree on something to make it just. It isn't uh, the will of the individual or the will of a group. Um, if it isn't the right thing, then it isn't right. It isn't use and it can't be uh, made into uh, law. Uh, and for Aquinas then, we're in this world of relationships, each of us with God, whether consciously or not, uh, and with others. And uh, which means then not even the state or government, even if the will of a people, as it's sometimes put, can decide that something is just, but that won't make it right, the right thing, objectively. At another point, uh, the next question, question 58, Aquinas says, and this is why people at first sight find it very difficult to use Aquinas, because whatever else he is, he's not crisp and punchy. He says, well, the 12 points of inquiry well, already, uh, one can sense a kind of tiredness. But that's another thing he can teach us, I think, to help us with these inevitable disputes about justice and injustice, is that you need distinctions to think accurately. And when you get used to reading Aquinas, uh, he almost never says yes or no to anything. He always says, well, according to this, uh, according from that position, or according from that position, in this respect or that respect. And we have to get used to that as well, because there's a risk we think in blocks, and differentiated blocks, and we just offer that block. Uh, but um, so Aquinas then adopts basically Aristotle's position that justice is a habit, a disposition, whereby a person renders to each one their due, ius suum, their due, what they're entitled to, by a constant and perpetual will. That makes it a virtue. It's not just sporadic acts of justice, but it's a settled, firm disposition to do this. And to do what is to give each person their due, their use. Generally, then, a human virtue will be one which makes the person doing it, exercising it, good. Because it follows a rule of reason, which is what regulates human actions. And we see then that no part of morality makes sense on its own. In fact, can't really be understood unless related to other topics like reason or the will or truth, as we'll see. One objection is, and I repeat, Thomas uh, never gives a position, he justifies it, uh, and he meets fairly and honestly the objections to his position. Um, it's, it's not a monologue, it's dialectic in itself. And we do well to work like that. We don't just, in discussion with A, just present what we believe, take it or leave it. Um, that's not going to be a strong way of convincing someone. Uh, Thomas says that because of a will, what we 
wand and shoes uh, has on it uh, a closeness to reason, uh, but not just instinctive like many animals or plants that just turn towards the sun uh, because that's how they're organically built. Uh, we use our reason in choosing and not choosing. And this imprint of reason on us, says Thomas, takes the name of truth. And he says that's in fact why sometimes justice is called truth. So Aquinas isn't just rejecting the objection, but he, as it were, as we would say nowadays, reframes the objection. And that's going to be uh, an important lesson to learn from Aquinas, that you don't say to someone always, you're wrong, but uh, what I think you're trying to say is, or as I see it, um, you've left out some elements in what you've presented, and it would be better put like this, don't you think? That's a way of reframing the objection. And then there's a, a marvellous account of truth, or perhaps truthfulness, or truth-saying, as part of justice, which we might not immediately think. Remember, justice is giving everyone what is their due, what belongs to them. And truth is one of the things. Again, you notice it's not just it's part of my integrity to be truthful, but it's part of what I owe to you to be truthful. It has to begin to understand the virtue of justice. And here then, Thomas says that human beings are a social being, homo est animal sociale, which again, it's very countercultural today and will have to be argued for, where extreme individualism strikes people as so obvious. I'll reflect on that in a minute. For Thomas, there's a natural indebtedness of one person to another as regards those things without which life in society could not be maintained. People couldn't live with one another were they not a mutual trust ever being truthful to each other. And the virtue of truth then is, as in some sense, related to indebtedness. We owe it to each other. We wouldn't be a society unless we could rely on each other to be truthful, to speak the truth. Now, of course, we're becoming familiar um, perhaps too familiar with the idea of fake news or truth spinning or, um, as is now put, post-truth society. Now, that's these words are very significant and people act on it. I mean, we're talking about billions of people on social media. And the risk of that is, of course, that each individual creates their own world and only listen or speak to like-minded people. So what should be social media? It's in fact, the individual's echo chamber. You just hear yourself a thousand times. And, and these are so many consequences uh, in social life. Uh, or of course, we now say my truth, or that's your truth, but my truth is this. We're a long way away 
to relating truth to justice, which means relating it to being with others, being social. Post-truth doesn't mean lying. We always have lying. Um, and generally people haven't boasted about it. Uh, Post-truth means that truth itself doesn't count as much as it did. That, in fact, the emotions uh, are more likely to convince people than truth. And so we abandon the offer of truth or the search for it, um, which will not always be easy, but should be attempted, um, uh, but not even seeking it. Uh, and this is, again, um, in a sense that because Catholicism is so strong rationally, because one of the three sources of moral theology is reason, uh, we, we shouldn't give way easily to this. The, um, there's a difference which, in debate, we don't always, especially if it's something really fundamental, somebody's right, uh, or are right even, uh, that we, we sort of forget that there's a difference between knowing the truth and convincing someone of it, and it's not the same move. So just repeating it more loudly and banging your fist um, might make you possess the truth, but it won't convince. So those are separate moves. Uh, in the old days, the old tradition of moral theology, of theology, a thing called apologetics, which suffered really a uh, kind of bad reputation, but shouldn't be totally discarded. That keep in mind that you knowing the truth won't necessarily convince someone else. To do that, you have to listen to her, to him, uh, to the people you're talking to, as Thomas does through his objections. Then Aquinas looks at justice in roughly three ways, which I'll mention briefly. Um, there's what he calls legal justice, which means uh, the individuals giving due to society, to others, to the state. Uh, there's distributive justice, which is, look at it from the other point of view, how society distributes its burdens and rights. That's distributive justice. And then what he calls commutative justice, which is horizontal, if you like, between individuals. And then he makes a kind of an aside, which I also would like to develop a little bit. He's contrasting justice with liberality, with being generous. And he very carefully says that although we must be just towards everyone, we can't possibly be liberal, meaning, I mean, liberality, generous towards everyone. I mean, presupposing that there aren't enough resources. Uh, but the duty is of justice. Liberality as a, an expression of love is separate. And of course, this is where the Christian view completes the natural picture. That the difference is very important between justice and love. And it's often confused. Justice gives someone or the community what is their due. Love gives what sometimes is not their due. And that's why it's a much more complicated uh, 
action, especially charity, God-given love. Because justice would only make us give what is due. Love makes us give what isn't due, what isn't deserved. But a, a certain kind of person, even a certain Christian, just lives by justice, which is already something, uh, but neglects love, which, as I say, can involve giving people what isn't their due, what they don't deserve, unlike justice. Uh, and one could develop this. Um, and of course, uh, for, for Thomas, for all Christians, uh, the force behind all this is God's uh, love for us, which was unmerited. Uh, in justice, we were condemned. In love, we were redeemed. Um, you know, um, the condemnation is what we deserve. That was our due. But love goes beyond it. Uh, but it, we mustn't be confused, because otherwise you dissolve justice. And because love can't be predicted in advance very accurately, uh, we tend to think, well, justice can't either. So I'll just be loving when I, so I can manage it. But I mean, first, you should be just always. Then love, generosity, particularly charity, the love God gives us uh, can come according to prudent judgment. Then there's a whole section beginning on injustice, which then will go on for quite a few pages, which opposes the common good uh, or is an inequality between one person and another when someone wishes to have more benefits than is their due or fewer burdens than uh, are their due. Because that's one of the particular views um, which is connected to, to this business of not just my rights or your rights, but what is right, what is due. Because, as it were, it could be that a burden is due to you. It's not just advantages. And that's why it's very hard to grasp uh, for this for us, um, because it's objective. In this situation, what is due might be a burden for one of you. Um, uh, it needn't necessarily, it might be an obligation, it needn't necessarily be an advantage. Now, the question he asks about uh, passing judgment is obviously very important, and particularly for good-natured good people, because uh, how often we hear it, we mustn't judge, or, oh, he's a judgmental person. Uh, as Thomas say, yes and no, of course, it depends what you mean. And he has a whole string of conditions, if you like, in which one can pass judgment and must. Uh, the simplest way I put it, but this is me, not Aquinas, um, so simple in every sense, um, is supposing I said to one of you watching this, assuming there is anyone watching this, um, I forgive you. You might say, well, for what? Oh, no, I just forgive you. Well, that's meaningless. Unless you judge that you've done wrong or wrong has been done to you, you can't forgive. There'll be nothing to forgive. So all forgiveness presupposes judgment. No judgment, no forgiveness. But for some reason, people are reluctant to understand that. Um, you can possibly forgive someone unless they've done a wrong. Otherwise, what would you be forgiving? Uh, it, it, it sound, it's pious nonsense, but it's nonsense. Um, uh, so Aquinas goes into all this. 
that's my sort of quick, simple way of putting it. So when the objection comes immediately, of course, from Scripture, a judge not and you shall not be judged, Aquinas says judgment is licit insofar as it's an act of justice. And that's what's due. Uh, that's, what, that's what's required. For Aquinas, Christ's words forbid rash judgment or judgments about divine things, which we ought simply to believe, or judgments that proceed not from kindness, benevolence, but from bitterness. Now, all that is forbidden by Christ. But as I say, uh, and these are my words, but I, I think they're faithful to Aquinas, um, unless there's judging that a wrong has been done, then there can't be forgiveness. But it's so easy to hear people speak about, oh, you must be forgiving, you mustn't judge. Uh, you can easily pull that apart, as I say. Uh, never believe speakers when they say they're about to finish, because they never are. Uh, but I am about to finish. Um, this is sort of encourage you to listen on. Um, but remember the senses also of justice, which Aquinas gives, and each has to be treated on its own. Uh, legal justice, meaning what each of us owes to the common good, to the community, to society. Uh, distributive justice, which comes down to us, as it were, and commutative justice, which is dealings between two persons. Um, Aquinas says that even as part, as a part and a whole are related, so to deal with a part is to deal with a whole, and to deal with a whole is to deal with a part. So when the community, sorry, when the goods of a community are distributed among a number of individuals, each one receives that which in a way is its own. It's not as well a community surrendering what is owed to the individual, it's already his own. Because part of a virtue then is to give someone their due, meaning what's their own, what they're entitled to, uh, objectively, not because you decide or we decide. That's a road, one of the roads to injustice. Um, and that's, of course, one of the risks of democracies that you have what's called the tyranny of a majority. Now, we usually think of tyrants as individuals, but there's no reason why a large group can't be tyrannical. And you look around the world, I mean, the position of minorities is often a risk. And it can't be justified because the majority agrees to it. Um, um, then there are, um, uh, just a, a little footnote by human rights, which often come up in this context of what's due. Now, this, of course, is a very modern way of speaking. Uh, probably as such, Aquinas wouldn't have had the notion of human rights. So, of course, he had the notion of rights, natural rights. Uh, but you could argue, and Professor John Finnis, um, extremely well-known uh, lawyer and philosopher, Catholic, um, in many of his works argues, and he has a whole book on Aquinas, um, Professor John Finnis. Um, because justice commits us uh, to giving to everyone, uh, either in common, in society as a group, or individually, uh, then you can indirectly, even out of duties, draw out rights. If I have a duty to do this or not to do that towards you, then you have a right 
that not that not be done to you or be done to you. Um, and then he lists. I give you the list because it's uh, helpful. I think um, not to be intentionally killed by another private person, or to be physically harmed, or subjected to loss or damage uh, to personal property, or falsely accused uh, of, of anything. And you could multiply those. Well, if that's the duty not to do that, then there's a, a, a correlative right not to have done that done to you. But the modern language of rights uh, has a, an advantage uh, because it makes clear and gives dignity to the person who has the right and not just makes clear we all carry out our duties. But what I've tried to do, um, and now I really am ending, uh, is to offer both the method Aquinas uses in discussing justice, in fact, discussing anything, which I think has many helpful sides, and some idea of what he himself uh, believed uh, justice to be. <laughs>